Today's episode was recorded in person at the BEB Day 2019, a meeting organized by the students of the BEB PhD program of the Center for Neuroscience and Cell Biology of the University of Coimbra in Portugal. In it, you will hear about the projects and career paths of a PhD student, a PhD graduate, and a researcher who gave talks at the meeting. Please note that due to some minor gear malfunctions, there are some extraneous noises at certain points in the episode, so please bear with me and listen on. You'll see, it will be worth it. And remember to follow Papa PhD on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and to download the Papa PhD resource sheet and subscribe to the newsletter at the bottom of the Papa PhD website. Welcome to the show. I think uh, if you're interested in entrepreneurship and really have an opportunity to, to translate it or at some point to to understand the path that you have to take to translate the idea uh, to the clinics. I mean, uh, it's a question of, you know, uh, grab it as hard as you can. Once you find the solution, let it sink in and then take the risk. There's no there's no right path. You, you'll, you'll see there is really not a solution. There's not a formula. There's no right and wrong for anything. So everyone's path is different. So just know yourself, know what's right for you and do what feels right for you. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. We are here today. Uh, around uh, around the table at the CNC in Coimbra, Portugal, to talk about careers after your PhD, and uh, we're here uh, on the margin of Beb Day 2019, a meeting specifically uh, aimed at uh, at students of the the Beb PhD program to let them know what's out there, what's expecting them to to kind of help them not be too anxious about the future, and um, think of what skills they need to develop to carve a path for themselves in a, in a healthy and uh, fulfilling way. And around the table, I have today with me Fabio Rosa, Patricia Monteiro and Gil Costa, who are going to be sharing their paths until today and uh, how they went through grad school and uh, also what happened along the way that brought them to, to where they are today. Um, and uh, we're going to start with Fabio. Fabio, can you present yourself? Sure. Um... First of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, my name is Fabio. Um, I'm a PhD student uh, performing a double degree in both University of Coimbra here at the Center for Neuroscience and Cell Biology and at Lund University in Sweden. And uh, since uh, my, the start of my research path, which started during my master's degree also here at, Lund at uh, Coimbra University, I always develop interest in the translation of uh, science-based technologies into a possible viable product that one day perhaps could help patients. Um, so in that sense, since my master's degree, I enrolled in several acceleration programs. So I acquired a lot of knowledge regarding entrepreneurship and commercialization of laboratory-based technologies into products for the market, which culminated in the establishment of two different startup companies, one in Portugal called BRT, Blood Reprogramming Technologies, 
And the second one that I more recently established uh, last year in December, and today is almost the one-year uh, birthday, so it's an interesting one year that I've passed. Um, uh, the second startup uh, company now that was established in uh, Lund, so in Sweden, and aims at developing a uh, very um, out-of-the-box uh, therapy to help solid tumor patients uh, in the clinics. Um, Gilles, what about you? Thanks also to, for inviting me. My name is uh, Gilles. I'm, um, after my PhD in neurosciences, I started uh, uh, practicing science communication, especially and uh, the part of visualizing uh, visualizations of, uh, of, of the science communication. So I'm now a freelancer, a scientific illustrator and designer. And uh, I work with uh, researchers, uh, institutes and uh, companies uh, producing um, institutional communication, but especially communications, uh, visual communications for for scientists for whenever they have to publish reviews or reviews or uh, you know uh, grants. So yeah. to help them put the, the, all their thoughts in, into images. Yeah, true. Yeah. Patricia, uh, what about you? What's your story? I'm Patricia, as you said. I'm a pharmacist by trading, um, but then I did a PhD in neuroscience. Um, that has become my passion, and I never left it since. So I'm still in academia. So I did a traditional PhD, postdoc, and I'm an assistant uh, professor um, at Minho University, at the School of Medicine at ICVS, and I still study neuroscience. Particular, I'm very interested in the brain circuitry uh, that underlies autism spectrum disorders. Okay, super interesting and super actual. I'm going to start with uh, with Fabio, and uh, the question for you, you know, and having gone through a PhD and, and you know, knowing the time that it that it took me and, uh, and the, the weekends that it took me, the first question I have for you is: How do you manage your time to be able to marry your research and your entrepreneurial activities? Yeah, first of all, thank you very much for that question because I actually I'm still trying to figure out that. <laughs> um, the truth is, um, yes, as PhD students, we don't have that much time. So basically, our all our weekends are occupied. We have cells that we have to feed, uh, mice that we have to control. Um, so. How I do that, uh, I think it's a lot um, focused on organizing the time and all free time or possible free time that I have, I always try to fit something that uh, you know the company requires, some pitch that has to be prepared, some application for funding that has to be written. Um, and basically all of this is also possible because uh, you know, um, as a, a co-founder of, uh, of my uh, the startups that I co-founded, I didn't found it alone. So it's a teamwork, and uh, I'm really lucky uh, to uh, be working with, the, from my knowledge, the best team that I could be working with. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are basically a, a team of three uh, co-founders for both uh, startup companies, and uh, they are really. Uh, great inspiration for me and uh, uh, for example um, considering the most recent startup that I founded Asgard Therapeutics um, Christiana Pierce which is the postdoc that um, 
typically have been working with me since I started my research career. So now she's the CEO of the company. Uh, so she works 50% in the company, 50% as postdoc. And this cooperation in, between the three members of the, of the company, you know, the distribution and allocation of different tasks uh, really helps throughout the, um, the different stages of, uh, of the development of the company. So, yes, a lot of, uh, uh, no, I would rephrase that, no free weekends, I would say. Um, very few uh, free hours during the week, which uh, in order to keep uh, sanity, uh, I try to, you know, read some books, um, talk uh, with uh, with some friends, you know, to try to to relax a little bit, because I also think that these uh, this more uh, chilling times are also very important uh, throughout this very busy <laughs> uh, months that I have just passed and I know that are expecting me in the future, yes. And uh, a follow-up question on that is, how does your PI, or, or you're, you're doing the PhD conjunctly, right? How do your PIs deal or, or feel about, you know, the fact that you, you are touching you know different things and you're not full-time working towards towards the research that's a very good question as a FT, fct fellow i work 100 of the time for my phd uh, so i use my free time to invest on company development that's the first answer second answer that's very interesting because the supervisor in both universities is the same supervisor that, so that also helps And moreover, he is also one of the co-founders of the company. So that also helps me <laughs> justifying the time that I might or not have to spend on doing some activities for the company. Okay, I was totally not expecting that answer. <laughs> Now, we're talking about this. You, you're already developing these activities. And again, you, you, you have people that are working with you. How did you meet these people? And how did these ideas, how did you get involved in, in these projects? How was their inception? Uh, that's a, I would like to so then explain more or less the path that I took because so uh, I started my research career doing my master's right so in the second year we have to choose a thesis um, and a lab to, to do research work uh, so hands on uh, working with cells with bacteria etc so on that time uh, this was back in 2015 um, Philippe Pereira uh, which is currently my supervisor and the PI of the group uh, where I'm working on in um, he was coming from his postdoctoral studies uh, that he, he did in New York and Mount Sinai School of Medicine and so he was uh, immediately starting his group in the beginning of the year so I, I actually I was looking at the website of CNC and I said okay this is an interesting new group working with something called cell reprogramming like converting one cell type into another one like weird concept is this I really got interest on, on the concepts that Philip was, was exploring So um, in the, in the con uh, con uh, context of my thesis, I, I reached out to him and I asked him whether he would be uh, willing to accept a master's student. And uh, at the end, he said yes, and I was really excited, but uh, I still remember the first day I arrived to the lab and I saw, okay, there's nothing in the lab. So it was a new lab, no equipment, only one computer. 
that I used to do the preliminary bioinformatic analysis. So, uh, in the beginning, it was a huge adventure um, to you know to start and to buy the different equipments for the lab, do this incorporation, Philip. But uh, continuing to your your question, so when Philip arrived here in his postdoctoral studies, he developed a technology that uh, basically enabled the generation of blood stem cells, uh, so the ones that are actually transplanted in a bone marrow tra transplant. Uh, by converting skin cells into blood stem cells. So he had this technology and he was interested in exploring the potential uh, translation of a such lab-based technology. So at that time, um, I was the only student there and um, one month after, Christiana Pirsch arrived to the lab as well. So the three of us um, enrolled in this adventure uh, on trying to understand how uh, or what are or what is the best path to take to translate this technology. So for that we played for a accelerator program that no longer exists, but it was called Coitec. So it was uh, an acceleration program that uh, um, happened in, in, in Porto uh, and was basically for researchers that had lab-based technologies uh, that could potentially be patented, so protected, uh, the intellectual property. And we were collaborating with MBA students to try to uh, not only identify the best market need, but also to develop all the financials and business model for, for such technologies. So cutting a long story short, at the end, we had a business plan for, for, for this product, for the generation of blood stem cells for transplantation. Uh, we got a, lit, uh, a lot of interest from, from the key players in this, in this market, so we established this first startup company. So all this process of going to this accelerator program really helped us you know, to, to understand which steps we should take. So at this point, we, have, we had the, our idea validated, so we uh, officially um, st established a company uh, in Cantanhede, uh, because we were working in UC Biotech um, near Coimbra, and uh, we established it in 2017. So on that year, we applied for other accelerator programs, because it was very important to try to improve the business model, business concepts, uh, and uh, our idea of what the product could one day be. Uh, we actually, in, in those four years, we received four awards. Uh, importantly, we received two seals of excellence from the European Commission. And here, I will reach the first big red flag of our uh, project, mm -hmm. which was IP. Because the IP was uh, in uh, um, uh, American University. And uh, while we were developing this idea, uh, and discussing at the same time with this uh, American university the, the licensing of the patents, uh, a big family uh, from the United States actually got interested in the patent and acquired it. So at the end, uh, we had uh, a lot of work put it together to try to develop this business concept, and at that point, we no longer could work on this, uh, on this business um, and idea, let's say. So, I mean, it was unfortunate for us, yes, uh, but... Uh, we, we really faced it as a, not as a negative point, because at the end we really uh, learned a lot with the process, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, nowadays with this new company that we have started, I think it was much easier, the process, because actually we learned a lot in the beginning that now we are applying. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so this uh, now with Asgard Therapeutics in Lund, we also have access to a lot of help from uh, Lund University, so their uh, innovation office that also helps us through how all the process of company creation, access to non-dilutive funding, and all the details that, uh, you know, as a startup that is growing in a very competitive environment, I have to understand. 
And uh, out of curiosity, what's your, what's your role in the company uh, as it is right now? Currently, since I'm a PhD student uh, working full-time on my PhD, uh, I hold a position as a board member. So I take uh, executive decisions um, every time the, the board meets, more or less, uh, every month. Um, and basically, in the context of my PhD, uh, I'm helping how uh, helping the development of the proof-of-concept experiments in vivo with animals and uh, constantly improving the technology and creating more IP so that we can improve the IP position of the company and guarantee a safe environment to explore uh, in the near future. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, in all this process, I know you're, you're, you know, you're focused on, on your PhD uh, a lot. Did you uh, get any training in terms of, uh, of, of you know, st anything startup management, things like that, or you're, you're going to do that later on and now you're focusing really on the science? So now my main focus is on science and I think it will always be because although I, I truly love translation and entrepreneurship, um, there's something that uh, about science that, you know, excites me you know it's it's the fact that you can never understand it completely you can you know you understand step by step but every step you go further it's a happy moment you know mm -hmm. uh, and i think that's that's why i i, I truly love this uh, this translation so with this i i mean that uh, if i want to you know to get more into administrative and administration of the company uh, perhaps not i would be more focused on innovation uh, very focused on the technology and science itself and how we can explore the technology or parallel technologies to maybe target more markets or, um, you know, um, improve and upgrade the technology as it is because there's always space to improve. So, yeah, I'll, I see myself more in that, in that sense. Okay. And um, I feel that you, you're a very self-motivated person. Uh, I feel that, that energy. Um, I was going to ask you whether you had mentors that, that helped you along the way. Your PI probably, because he's very very invested in the project, must, must be one. Exactly. So I would say that I have two main, um, main persons that really had a big impact in my life. Uh, first of all was Filipe uh, Pereira, my supervisor since master's uh, studies until now PhD. Um, I feel that I learned so much from him and I still learn every day. Um, and it, it's incredible because you really think, okay, I mean, at some point you can no longer learn more, but um, uh, incredibly you always learn more. So, uh, and uh, it, it's really nice to, you know, to be uh, present and near uh, people like Philippe and Christiana Pires, which is the second um, person that I really base myself and uh, the, all the... The, the activities and path that I take, uh, because on the one hand, Philippe as a supervisor, so um, really helped me establishing my own, you know, research network and research infrastructure. And then Christina Pirsch, she's always very motivated and, uh, you know, whatever block or obstacle that we face, she's always you know, trying to get around it. Uh, that's why she's a CEO, right? I mean, uh, a lot of work, a lot of competitiveness. And uh, so to sum up, I think these two uh, persons really impacted positively my life. They continue to, and I hope that in the future they will still do. Yeah. Excellent. I, I, I... Really feeling a lot of positivity in, in your story, and it's, it's really inspiring that way. Um, I'm going to now skip to Gilles. It's time for Gilles to, to uh, 
answer some questions and uh, and share a little bit more about his path towards towards design and 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 science illustration. My first question to you is: At what point of your academic path did you feel that that you had this call for doing something else for and in, in this case uh, scientific illustration? I think I, I had a call to do something else in multiple steps in my academic path. I, I remember the first year when I was in Cold Spring Arbor, I was not doing uh, very well. And uh, actually what I wanted to do is become an actor because uh, before uh, studying biology in Coimbra, I spent five years in the theater group. Um, but uh, And then I think it was always kind of a reassessment process along the way. It, it took me seven years to do the PhD. It was fantastic. Scientifically went out very well. But the point where I understood that actually I would like to pursue a graphic design was when I started doing my own figures uh, for, my, for my first paper. I realized that I was super obsessed with them. I was really OCD in, uh, in the aligning stuff or having a color palette that uh, was fit enough. And I was going home and trying to solve this type of, of issues. More so that I was interested in my data, actually. Uh, so I have to say that all during my path, during my PhD path, um, I was collaborating with a science communication group. That uh, so I worked in the Champalmo Foundation in Lisbon, uh, one year in Cold Spring Harbor, and then the rest in the Champalmo Foundation, and uh, it was basically something which was starting the, the, the foundation itself, the project, the neuroscience project in uh, research in, the, in, in Lisbon. And uh, there was a, long, a lot of uh, young people, a lot of uh, new explorers in different aspects of uh, lab life, and one of them was science communication. So we created this uh, uh, group called AR, which was uh, creating events for the large public uh, taking advantage from speakers that were coming to the institute and we would put them into a big auditorium with a nice uh, view and all fancy people would come, public would come to check um, talks on food or on dance mm -hmm. and these talks they needed to be uh, advertised so I was doing the posters for this type of uh, events so that, this was just pure communication not related to science and again, I was nurturing this, uh, this uh, skills. I was really enjoying them. And once I had to decide what to do, my boss came to me and asked, Gilles, uh, what do you want to do? Do you want me to help you move to a postdoc? Or do you, do you want any letters from me? And I said, no, Zach, I'm, I think I'm going to pursue graphic design. It's amazing. So, because one of my questions w was going to be, how did you bridge, you know, both things, you know, finishing and then change and, and then swapping uh, activities? But it was seamless. Like it happened yeah, in the same in the same place in the same institution. You just switched tracks. Yeah, I was very lucky. I was very lucky that to be in the right time with the right skills at the you know right place. So the, the, the research project program, the neuroscience research program, was as I was saying was you know uh, uh, growing, mm -hmm. uh, just infant, and they just started to uh, a psychom office, um, science communication office with a person that would do press releases, another uh, science writer, and they needed uh, something to do the visuals. 
since they they already knew me since i already collaborated with them it was very natural i just uh, i was very lucky to be able to have then i spent there three two two to three years and uh, it was a learning uh, place yeah it's funny patricia gave a, a presentation and talked about serendipity earlier earlier today and here we are with a great example i'm just gonna jump in to say that Exactly the same thing. Like, uh, I think the word I hear the most in this table is mentoring, support, and luck. And I do think that serendipity plays a big role, right? It's just, do you have your eyes open? Are you willing to embrace opportunities? That's super important. Yeah, definitely. And, and you, you gave a great talk about that earlier today. Um, now, Gilles, one question I have for you is, you were teaching yourself these skills or you had taught yourself these skills as you're doing your, your, your figures for your, for your um, articles and, and for, for your material. Did you get any training afterward? Like once you said you, you, you got this job as a graphic designer, did you go about studying a little more, you know, making yourself more of a, 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 more of a professional in a, in a sense? So I have, to, I have to say I didn't start uh, with, the, with the figures. So I had in the, when I was doing the theater here, I started actually in the theater group making posters for uh, the, the theater plays. And then uh, a big step was when I, I there, there's like a big festival, well, sort of big festival in Portugal, uh, dance festival that they were um, asking for uh, in a competition to to have um, uh, a poster and, and and I applied and I I won the, the kind of a thing and so it was actually a long process I think it took me ten years of YouTube and uh, and 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 uh, just fiddling around of course after I I really decided then yeah I I enrolled in. Uh, for a, a year in a, in a school in uh, Lisbon called Etique, where I learned motion design, which is basically design animation. Mm -hmm. And I learned, uh, then, then I went to summer school in uh, Copenhagen, actually, uh, which, which actually gave me, it was very important, it was just two weeks, but it was super important for my path because it just showed me the, the possibility, the endless possibilities of something that I was just coming to. Mm -hmm. So this opened up my, my world. And uh, just last year, for instance, I was doing a, a one-year course on a um, kind of more traditional science illustration using, you know, watercolor and uh, graphite and with a very good professor in Lisbon called the... Um, actually, I forgot, how was it called? Uh, Pedro, Pedro... Yeah, I forgot. Anyway, it was a, like a, one of these uh, samurai masters of the, 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 this kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I definitely when I realized that uh, I was doing this for uh, for a business and uh, for a job, I mean, I I, I got um, hmm. I got uh, training. And uh, can you can you tell us uh, maybe with a little bit more detail what sort of projects you're working on these days yeah, and so who your who your target audience is when you're creating? So nowadays uh, I'm uh, I'm purely a freelancer, and most of the work that I do is uh, related just with the scientists. So I help scientists again to prepare their figures and reviews. I'm also collaborate with them. Um, you know, there's always some new consortia that is being created, or some uh, Horizon 2020 grant which is starting. And so I do some logos, or I do some brochure. For instance, I'm currently preparing a brochure for a, a rare disease uh, with the uh, University of uh, Dublin. 
Uh, I'm preparing uh, branding for a new consortium which is starting in, in Lisbon. But most of my work is related to helping scientists uh, generate their, their figures, which I do for them. And clearly or surely your, your background, when, when you present yourself and you offer your services, the fact that you come from a scientific background you know, you must show your portfolio, but the fact that you have a scientific background must create a bridge between you and the people who are buying your services, right? Yeah, I think that's actually the... the, the, the I, w I wouldn't say like uh, that's the only thing that I have of special, but it, it is actually the most important thing because there's a lot of talented people out there doing design. There's a lot of talented illustrators out there. Uh, the fact that I can just meet with a scientist for say half an hour on Skype and they will explain me more or less what they want, send me the paper and then I can generate them a, a figure without many iterations, let's say one or two, it makes a lot of difference. I think what people struggle, people which are, don't have the scientific path and then now I have to work with the sciences, scientists, they struggle because they don't have, first they, they, yeah, they need to do more research and then they somehow I think the, they are not assigned the, the credit. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know how to say this, but I, I, uh, I think there's an immediate credit that I have because I have this uh, PhD. Um, but yeah, it's in, the term, it's in the communicating with a client that uh, uh, my strength comes from. And like you say, the fact that you can see in the eye of your mind what they're, what they're saying. You don't have to go to a, to a book to try to understand the words that they said right away. And the fact that they don't have to go back and forth 20 times with you, for sure, it must make a difference. And the fact that one thing that I learned in my PhD is actually to ask questions not, and not being, uh, you know, shame of asking questions. So if I don't understand what the person is saying, I really ask it and don't feel, you know, conflicted about it. And uh, out of curiosity, because you were at the Champalimau uh, Foundation, so you know work was coming to you. Now you're a freelancer. You need to go find work. How you know? How did you develop that capacity and even I imagine a network of now being able to consistently? And I'm assuming that you consistently get projects here and there. Uh, what were the steps? What were the things that you had to learn to navigate that that space? I think the, the other thing that uh, uh, comes from my background is actually that I had a, a network of scientists. I had uh, met a lot of people, uh, networked, I went to the meetings. So there's a bunch of people that are already know me. And, and so far it has been by, I to say that I haven't been advertising at all. Mm -hmm. Although I started, of course, like a Twitter and a LinkedIn and, uh, you know, the, I have professional LinkedIn and Twitter where I, I here and there send some tweets or um, do some social uh, media uh, kind of stuff. Most of the thing has been from my, I don't know, people just come in. But I, I do think that I'll uh, eventually, I'll, even if it's uh, to get different types of uh, jobs, I mostly work with neuroscientists. Mm -hmm also work with uh, other types of people, but not, but mostly with neuroscientists. So if I want to reach out, I think I'll, and I, I actually, I don't know how, to, how, how will I do that, but uh, let's see. Excellent. Um, I'll ask questions to everyone later on, sure. but uh, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask uh, Patricia to 
Uh, yeah, I'm going to ask you some questions because so you uh, are in academia, but you're developing, you know, other activities and, and you one of the things in the, the presentation that you gave today that, that, uh, that really piqued my, my interest was you talked about science outreach and uh, and that's one of the things that that is very close to my heart. I think it's it's very necessary nowadays uh, for different reasons, I think. People should know, you know, when they're taking a drug, they should know more or less why it acts on them and why the headache goes away. Um, and uh, and that's, that's just one aspect. Today we're bombarded with different publicity, with publicity that even has, has kind of like fake science in it. And so really, I, I, I really think that any project, be it illustration or uh, videos or w whatever type of content brings really uh, easily understandable information to the public about things that are maybe quite complicated. I think it's, it's very, very good work. So my first question to you is, in your view, what role do professors and researchers play in bringing science outside the university walls? That's a super important question. Um, first of all, I think there's a paradigm shift um, that before in academia there was the idea that you know scientists are here doing their job and if if society is interested then they need to do the effort to leap the gap and get to know what's being done in the lab today that's not true and as you said as scientists we have responsibilities to society and one of them is to help them to take informed decisions and so i guess that's exactly how i got started uh, because, um, as I said before, I work in uh, autism spectrum disorders and I had a study a few years ago. It was a big impact journal, which is great for scientists, but then it also gets the attention of the media. And uh, we were working with an animal model of autism that we showed that we could reverse the symptoms, neurological brain symptoms at the adult stage which was very uh, groundbreaking since that there's this idea of critical windows of therapy, especially for the brain that develops very early on. And then in adulthood, can you actually do something? So that was kind of my first call for action because then I start receiving phone calls from the press uh, and some were good press and some was more negative press in the sense that uh, there's a lot of fake news uh, regarding autism and vaccination um, and all these studies. Uh, and sometimes uh, people want to believe uh, also in fake news because those make uh, tabloids, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to train myself to communicate better to people what, what does it mean. And that means going to the root of the news and saying, like, this is a fake news because it's not just because a scientist says so, it's a fake news because it starts from a study that the scientist admitted did it in a fraudulent way. And having to explain this to people really made me aware of how important it is to bring science into a general audience and, and make yourself understandable because it's also your responsibility to make yourself uh, understandable and, and being heard. So after that, I started engaging into many activities. Um, I often speak to high school students in a different perspective, trying to motivate them to engage into STEM. Uh, I talk to foundations uh, and also groups of parents, associations and, and patients, try to 
uh, explain them what we know about the, the disorder, at what stage are we at. Um, later on, I started to get involved even more broadly. There was this recent call, uh, either last year or two years ago, to get involved in a group called Voice of Young Scientists. This is a movement that started in UK and they actually uh, want active scientists to be part of them to oftentimes speak about uh, media uh, news that they're requested to have an opinion or oftentimes they work with the Congress to explain uh, and help them make political decisions. So we do have uh, that responsibility in our shoulders. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. I, I see a lot of heads nodding here and, and, and agreeing with you. Uh, I, I think it's uh, it's really important and today the, this communication is so easy that I think it's really a step that needs to be made but it takes also universities wanting to put money into these types of things and one of the things you talked about in your talk was getting funding. Uh, I don't know if for science communication it's easy to get, to get funding but um, maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, but I, t I totally agree with with, uh, with everything you said and it's a bit of a shame that we're in the 21st century and there's so much uh, disinformation out there. Now, my next question uh, is a little bit similar to a question that I asked, that I asked Fabio and it, it's how do you personally interface the lab and, and the knowledge transfer side of things? Uh, how's your how's your day-to-day -day in that sense? Uh, how much time goes into one and into the other? Uh, maybe I'm not a good example to talk about work-life balance. <laughs> I do put a lot of my, well, better saying this way, I don't think I separate the two very well. So work is part of my life and my life is a lot uh, connected to my work. Uh, so I do love what I do, otherwise I don't think I could do it as passionately and with much dedication. Um, so I'm always, um, you know, curious about reading more things. So if I get home and I'm reading, it's often scientific reading. So is that life or is that work? Um, in a sense, it helps uh, because if you really like what you do, then it doesn't feel like work anymore. It's just you're investing in your passion. But on a personal side, it's also very important that you have people around you that understand and support your decisions. Because sometimes that can come with a cost if you, know, you happen to be with someone that might not be as supportive or do not see uh, the reach that you're trying to get. So it's very important to be surrounded by people that fully support you and understand the importance of what you do. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned STEM before. Uh, there's the other issue of women in STEM. And uh, I really, I don't know if you have something to say about that, but how, how has it been for you, maybe personally, but also within the university, to be a woman in STEM? How, how what challenges, you have a family, right? So how did you leave that? And, and how did you make, do you make it all work and, and uh, because clearly also, uh, you love, like, uh, it's clear that you love what you do, uh, but I'm sure you put a lot of, a lot of love in the, uh, the other aspects of your life too. Do you have any comments that you can share on that? Yeah, I think actually uh, one of the most important things uh, in that aspect is really a role model. Um, a lot of the work I do also in high schools is to try to provide a role model for women in STEM. And I cannot really pinpoint uh, 
when did I started paying attention to that? But perhaps there was a lot of unconscious uh, infusion back in my PhD. So I did my PhD um, at the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT. And in the same department, there was Professor Anne Grabiel, and she was actually the first female appointed professor at MIT. And she would tell me stories such as if she would have to go to the bathroom, she would have to cross the entire campus because there was only one female bathroom in the entire university campus. So when you go along your path and you start meeting these people, then you look back and you think, wow, I, I have it really easy nowadays. Uh, there's a lot of work that still needs to be, to be done, but a lot of these people have perhaps been very inspiring me. So I just feel that I do very, very little compared to them, but if I can contribute in a way, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very important. I can give you a personal example. For instance, I went to a, a public book release this week, not related to my field. This was astrophysics, but it just happened to be a super important or, or interesting book that is actually for um, more kids, but teenager side because there's some science involved in it. It's just not a fantasy story. And I actually went there because I wanted the author to sign the book so that I could give it to my niece this Christmas because she's 13. And I think it's a good way to get women motivated for astrophysics in this case, because I don't believe that we have fields that should be gender specific. That's very interesting. Uh, one of one of my latest guests on the podcast, she uh, she did her PhD in uh, in education, uh, no, postdoc in education, PhD in uh, neuro neuroscience, and uh, she she now she's she has three kids, um, and she started uh, a, a first uh, a business or offering the service of helping parents get science based information on kid development. And now she, she turned it into a website and, and anyway, she has people collaborating and grad students digesting uh, articles to, to, you know, to create some content, but um, which is super inspiring. Go, go listen to that episode. Uh, but one of the things she said in one, she did a lot of outreach when she was in grad school. And uh, one of the things she said was that they went to the school, they asked the kids to draw uh, uh, to draw a scientist, and most of them drew men with a uh, white lab coat, eh, very stereotypical. And and I said, did you ask them to then draw them after after you'd been there? Because um, you know they, it's it's ingrained. It's culturally there's there are things that are culturally ingrained, and there needs to be a positive force to change. Um, to change that th those preconceived there ideas. There is, and we all have bias that we don't realize. Uh, in in line of that, there's a series of experiments that have to, that have been done in psychology, and one of them was actually swapping babies because when they're around two to three months old or six months old, you cannot really tell gender. And so they would ask parents to bring in their kid and then they would say, okay, now I'm gonna swap your kid with another kid and you just hold it for a little bit because we want to see interaction uh, with a new uh, parent, new child-parent interaction. But the tricky thing here is that they would actually get your daughter and hand it, let's say, to Gilles and say, oh, here you have this little boy that you need to play with for 10 minutes. And then they would get somebody else's little boy and tell me, you know, this is a little girl. Can you play with her for 10 minutes? And actually people would immediately get, you know, cars for the boys or dolls for the girls. 
And then they would ask them, do you feel that kids already have like a gender preference from beginning? And people would be very assertive about this and say, oh, absolutely, I, I picked this doll and she absolutely loved it. You could tell that she had no interest for other toys in the room. So there's a lot of bias that comes with it. And we need to also educate ourselves. It's true, and, and that's a super interesting experiment. Um, now, I have a, a question, and it has to do again with, the, with interfacing these two things. Is it easy for you institutionally to develop your projects and follow your passions uh, besides pure and simple research? Absolutely. Uh, universities nowadays really see the value of science communication. That's actually one of their top priorities nowadays, because not only attracts more funding, so you have a lot more endowments because you bring attention to the research, but also makes it more clear to the public uh, for the research to be seen and understood by people. So they actually do appreciate that uh, people get more involved. And I think one good thing is that universities are investing more into their science communication office. And I think that's going to really uh, impact the way society uh, sees science in the future to come. Excellent. Well, that's very good news. And uh, it brings, brings the last question that, that's a follow-up, which is, what does doing outreach and, and, and uh, you know, investing in knowledge transfer, what does it bring back to your research, besides possibly funding? I think the f first and foremost thing I first felt was um, really appreciation from people. Uh, the first time I went and talked to a patient's association, I was terrified because I thought to myself, I work with mice. Uh, what do I have to say to these parents that actually have, uh, you know, someone that has a disorder? Um, and, you know, how is this related? And I was just so scared the first time I went to a patient's association. Um, and then it turns out that my approach was just to explain in lay terms, what the research was about. Not trying to make any translational big claims, overarching, but just explain what we know and what we don't know. And it was super rewarding because so many parents came at the end of the talk uh, and they came and congratulated me and really thanked me because for the first time they understand what happens in the brain or they even understand their genetic report because they just got this report with the missense mutation, truncation, what does it mean? And so they were very uh, thankful just for understanding. And I think that was the first uh, benefit I collected from it was appreciation and, and thankfulness from the people. And then in a more scientific way, apart from funding, uh, it was also very important to attract the right uh, people to work with me. So I've had very motivated students that, you know, they listen to my talk in, it happened here in Coimbra, once I came to Coimbra, and then a student heard my talk, and then she sent me an email asking, like, can I meet you in Braga and see your research, because I was really fascinated by the talk. So then you can also get to attract very, very uh, talented people that just feel passionate about the work. That's awesome. It's, those are great uh, fringe benefits for sure. <laughs> uh, now, you know, you've, you've all kind of told us your, your paths that you followed. Uh, I've, I've asked you some questions uh, that I felt were specific to each one of you, but now I'd like to kind of finish by, by asking you to, uh, to give some advice to the listeners. 
and um, and well, actually, uh, maybe Fabio, because you're in the uh, entrepreneurship side. If students are, you know, in their PhD, and it could be science, it could be, you know, humanities, arts, anything, but they have a, kind of a burgeoning entrepreneurial idea. Do you have any advice for them on how to make it happen eventually, and but you know, keeping their focus in their research also? Yeah, that's that's a very uh, interesting and difficult question because it truly depends on the on the type of technology that one wants to commercialize. Uh, I would say that uh, if you're talking about biotechnology, um, so where you know the technology that you're trying to, the idea that you're trying to commercialize is really based on what you are working on. Uh, I think in Portugal, especially now, since like entrepreneurship is a trend since maybe 10 years ago or something, so there's a lot of acceleration programs, um, a lot of uh, actually um, funding opportunities from the government that uh, uh, sustained, um, for example, a salary for six to one year. Uh, so that you can develop your business concepts. Obviously, uh, it relies on, on application, so we are going to compete with other people, as always. So uh, I really think that uh, here, here in Portugal, uh, we have a very rich environment for the translation of uh, laboratory-based based technologies. Uh, one advice I, I give uh, in in my case, and I think the lucky, uh, the, the, the fact that, uh, I mean, sometimes we have luck, and uh, I think that's very important, and they, that was what was discussed here and in the in the in the talks uh, today, is that I think uh, if you're interested in entrepreneurship and really have an opportunity to to translate it, or at some point to to understand the path that you have to take to translate the idea uh, to the clinics, I mean uh, it's a question of you know grab it as hard as you can, uh, and no matter what, I mean um, I, I try to do it that uh, no matter what. Uh, uh, work for it. Uh, work for it. Uh, don't uh, don't ignore whatever you have to do in the lab, obviously, because that should be your main priority. But whatever you have free time, uh, work for it. And you would say, specifically here in Portugal, look out for the, the programs out there, the startup and acceleration programs? Yes, exactly. I mean, um, especially for these accelerator programs, I really see Portugal as a hub of uh, entrepreneurship in the sense uh, in this very early stage you know idea generation uh, I think Portugal lacks a lot of uh, non-dilutive funding opportunities for when you already have an idea and you want to demonstrate a proof of concept or something because for example I also have a background from Sweden where I also doing my PhD and I, I understand uh, that there um, we have m uh, many more uh, non-dilutive funding opportunities so for the, for that you can use to validate your your model, to do some proof of concept studies, even for uh, for money for experiments. You have some, several foundations that support uh, this type of, uh, of translational applications. Uh, it in Portugal, um, I think this later stage where you still require some seed funding, and when I say seed funding, I'm talking about very uh, reduced amounts of money between 30,000 euros to maybe 100,000 euros. Uh, so I, I think that those, uh, those amounts are, I would say, more difficult to find here. They are not impossible. Uh, you just have to, as I said, really work um, hard on it. Uh, and uh, basically make sure that whatever idea you are gen uh, generating in the early stage, you really understand it, you really know your competitors, you really know your uh, your markets, 
and you are sure that you will have a place, uh, whatever market uh, or field you are aiming for. Yeah. Excellent. And um, now to finish, uh, and starting with Patricia, um, what main piece of advice would you share uh, with the listeners to help them in their academic and professional career, uh, and and to you know to do to have a transition, be it towards their postdoc and their and their academic track, but also it could be to to uh, to their profession smoothly and and uh, to have a fulfilling life after after finishing their PhD. I think the most important thing is to embrace your passion. Whatever you do, do it with passion. You know, uh, be the best of yourself in every hat you wear. If you're a father, be the best father you can be. If you're a scientist, be the best scientist you can be. If you're a podcaster, be the best podcaster you can be. But whatever you do, do it with passion because that's the, the only way you will show the best of yourself. And uh, Gilles, considering what's been said today, what, uh, what advice would you have to bring? I, I think, of course, yeah, pa passion, you, it, it's a granted, but it, it's, it's not something that you can force, though. It's something that comes. So if, I, I think the PhD, the life in ac ac academia, is very full of um, existential uh, questioning. And uh, once you find a, a solution, let it, let it sink in. And uh, and then take the risk. Like there's no there's no right path. Uh, you just you you'll you'll see. There is really not a solution. There's not a formula. And you have been uh, uh, until now. Like if you are a PhD student, say until now you've been following a, a certain direction that the educational system has provided you or the society that you are in. But you'll realize that there's so many avenues and so many possibilities. So. Uh, yeah chill out uh, i would say uh, and uh, and um, get some sun and uh, get some positive vibes wherever you can find and um yeah go for it it's i i know that it seems like a race i know that it seems very complicated for many people but uh i, I really feel that there's always uh, some sort of solution and you just have to yeah uh, i don't know if it's wait for it uh, but once you've found it, uh, don't let it go. And now, from, from all of you, whichever has ideas coming first, and think of the listeners, what, is the, what, what, what are the skills, the best skills that you have that you never imagined that you had coming out of a PhD? Uh, the ability to learn. I would say that I'm still doing the PhD, so, but the one that I mostly realize is this thing that I have, like every time I go to a congress, I always have to collaborate or try to find a, 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 a PI or a group uh, with which we can have a synergetic relationship uh, in science and towards uh, knowledge creation. I think it's one of the, yeah. And I would say curiosity is probably one. Uh, you talked uh, about uh, the, ab the ability to learn. I think they go hand in hand. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think uh, in collaboration it's it's funny because you people might think that it's a very solitary life being a scientist, but well, it can be in certain domains. 
but you're part of you usually you're part you're still part of a team you have a mentor you have there's there's postdocs and like depending on the groups also may sometimes there's collaborations with other groups so uh, thank you for for mentioning that because uh, I hadn't thought of it that way yeah I mean I think in my opinion um the old idea of uh, you know um, you should specialize yourself in one thing and you know and uh, and you know in the context of your PhD imagine that you have to do three different uh, or do research in three different fields you know um, you'll try to do the three and maybe eventually at the end you have one publication that's interesting but in my point of view I think uh, you know I have my key expertises and I do my research but if I find you know okay this group is very good on this thing I think both would benefit if we collaborate you know and science would advance so much uh, further and faster if you collaborate because you know, obviously, your group cannot have all expertises, definitely, you know. And there are fields, for example, I mean, peptidomics, for example, is a very specific field. Um, and my lab doesn't have the expertises. And uh, I really think that, uh, for example, our project would benefit uh, with a collaboration like that. And in the, in the previous uh, uh, congress uh, that I went, I, I really aimed on finding a person to collaborate. And I was successful on that. So I think... Uh, um, that's really my way of uh, of doing science is trying to find collaborations and trying to br- to bring science faster and uh, yeah. Patricia, do you have uh, any last inspiring words for for people who might be doubting? Did I did I make the right choice? Uh, is it is it worth my time spending these years doing this? I think for there's no right and wrong for anything. So I would vouch for that uh, after Gilles' comment. So everyone's path is different. So just know yourself, know what's right for you, and feel, do what feels right for you. I have to add, it's not an easy task. I think actually the, it's, it's very hard to know what's right for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but then, uh, it's a process. It's a process. I know I'm, I'm the interviewer and I want to put the least possible of my take on things, but I would add, be patient because the, the, the perfect thing may come in five years or even in 10 years. You know, and be be like a fisherman. Like, you know, I prepared. I have my anglers. I have my. I have everything. So now, you know that that big fish. It's it's gonna come when it comes. I'll be here. In the meantime, I'll do I'll do what's what's here and what's now. Especially, I would say, science is already so hard. Don't be too hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. Science is already hard enough. Mm-hmm. So be kind. Be patient. Don't make it harder. Those are great uh, closing words. Thank you so much for having accepted my kind of impromptu invitation to, to do this, this episode. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing your stories and, uh, and uh, hearing your input, and I think the listeners will too. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.